Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Over the past 18 months, public health agencies, special interest health groups, and a legion of public health foot soldiers pumped a fake epidemic of teen vaping and perpetrated a fallacious lie, vaping kills. In just six months, we've gone from dramatic daily announcements of new cases of vaping-related lung illness and death to dramatic daily announcements of new cases of COVID-19 illness and death. One hysteria ran into the other, or could they both be the same hysterias? Joining us today to talk about this is Dr. John Oyston, anesthesiologist and harm reduction advocate. He has decades of experience dealing with infectious disease, including frontline experience fighting the SARS outbreak in 2003. As a dedicated supporter of vaping as a tool for harm reduction, Dr. Oyston is tracking the convergence between CDC's hysteria over vaping and the hysteria over COVID-19. Dr. Oyston, thanks for joining us today on RegWatch. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, I wish it was under better circumstances. I know that a great many in our audience are concerned about the purported impacts that vaping may have on the health of vapors, which could be a problem for someone who becomes infected with COVID-19. Before we dive into that, please fill our viewers in about your medical background and experience fighting epidemics. Sure. Um, so after I finished my medical training, I specialized in anesthesiology. I've been doing that since 1982 and just recently retired. Um, when I first came to Canada, I spent a while working on the medical wards, treating patients with SARS. And then in 2003, I was an anesthesiologist on staff in Scarborough. And it's probably that Scarborough was the center for uh, SARS in Canada. And so I was involved in treating SARS patients in the operating room in the ICU in Scarborough General Hospital. And what was that like? It was pretty horrible. Um, it's difficult to work in the safety equipment that you need and wearing N95 masks during the working day is makes life very much more difficult. It's just more difficult to breathe. It's you just feel constricted, your face is always hot. You're having to be so much more careful about wearing gloves, washing your hands. Um, and to a certain extent you felt that you were playing Russian roulette because you didn't know what was going to happen. You know, with the emergency department with anesthesia, I was on call and so you never knew what was going to come through the emergency department next, who was going to be sick, who was going to need intubating. And there's always a possibility that you might that day meet the patient who infects you with SARS and, and changes your life. Mm. So explain to our audience what you do as an anesthesiologist, because it's a pretty important position with inside the whole healthcare process. You're the last guy people see before you put their lights out. Yeah, that's correct. So as an anesthesiologist, I'm responsible for assessing people preoperatively to make sure that they're in the best possible case to uh, in the best possible situation to undergo surgery, make sure they have you know, all the appropriate blood work and investigations done. Um, and then I'm responsible for making sure that people are monitored correctly during surgery, that they get the appropriate dose of anesthetic so they're asleep. Um, so we keep them safe and pain free uh, during the surgery and in the immediate postoperative period. And a major part of that work is the process of intubation, which is where you put uh, a tube down into someone's windpipe uh, and take over their breathing for them. Uh, and that's something that's needed routinely in anesthesia, but also it's needed for the care of our patients in intensive care who need to be on a ventilator. And that's exactly what I was going to ask you next. The the ventilator and the, the intubation that needs to happen yeah. to have the ventilator work really right. is a part of what you do. Exactly, yeah, that's the routine part of my life. And, and during the SARS epidemic, there was a real discussion about who should be intubating people because normally a routine intubation in the intensive care unit would get done by the intensivist. And it was nobody really wanted to be the person who has to intubate these patients because it's a high-risk procedure. Uh, it's difficult because the risk of spreading infection is so great, you have to wear an extra layer of protective gear. You have to be very concerned about who else is around you, uh, what else equipment you have. Uh, and now there are big discussions with intubating COVID patients as to exactly you know, who should be in the room, exactly what equipment should be in the room, what stuff should be in the room outside, immediately available, uh, the best and safest way of intubating these people. Uh, and the other thing you have to be really careful about is at the end of the case, you have to be very careful about taking off all the protective equipment uh, because now it's contaminated. And so you have to be very careful about the way you handle all the medical waste that's produced during the procedure. So this shortage that we hear all about uh, across the world here, even in the West, with regard to the ventilators, how real yeah. is that shortage and how critical is that then? 
Absolutely. So even in normal times in Scarborough and in other hospitals across the GTA and across Canada, intensive care unit beds are in short supply. Uh, and so one of the things I would regularly do as an anesthesiologist is I would call up the intensivist and say, you know, look, I'm about to start this surgical case. I think this person is so sick that at the end of the case, I'm not going to be able to extubate them. They're not going to be able to breathe by themselves. They're going to need to be on a ventilator in the intensive care unit. And if I was lucky, the intensivist would say, yeah, that's fine. You know, when you finish, just take the patient straight to ICU. But more often than not, they would say, well, hang on a sec. We're going to have to move some people. We're going to have to shuffle some things around. We're going to have to make some space. Um, you know, maybe you're going to have to keep the patient in the operating room for an extra hour or two. Um, you know, and so even in normal times, even when there isn't a flu outbreak, even when there isn't COVID, it's hard sometimes to find a ventilator. The other thing that was happening in my last year or two in Scarborough was that there were times when even under routine circumstances, the intensive care unit would spread out into the recovery area and use the anesthesia machines, the monitors, and the ventilation equipment in the recovery area uh, because the ICU was already full of ventilated patients. So we're pretty much at or over capacity normally on a day-to-day -day basis. So the idea that you're suddenly going to have a whole pile of more people who need intensive care and need ventilators is really quite scary. But this is the nature of COVID. COVID is primarily a virus that damages the lungs and it spreads throughout the whole lungs. It doesn't, like other pneumonias often only affect part of the lungs. COVID tends to affect the whole lung and we don't have treatments for it. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have medications that specifically treat COVID. So all we can do is what's called supportive care, which is stuff like intubating and ventilating the patient until their own immune system helps them and gets them better. And so, you know, the rumor is that about 5% of all the people who uh, get COVID are going to need to be in an ICU or on a ventilator. And that's going to be an enormous amount of people. And we don't have the resources. So let me ask you, um, and we'll get into a little bit of our position and how we've been reporting on this issue, because we do believe that there has been some form of convergence here, uh, because all of the players that are involved with uh, designating COVID a pandemic and then, you know, basically lighting the world's hair on fire and, you know, driving us straight into a wall, you can't deny the fact that, you know, our economy could be devastated uh, by this action. And... Um, so my question to you, as we get into some things here, is that, I mean, is this bug as bad as they say it is? And if so, um, look out, I guess. I guess so. It's not my field of expertise. So I, I trust the people in, in government. I trust the people who run public health. And it's not just Canada's public health people. It's public health people around the world who are saying, you know, that all these steps are necessary uh, you know, they're saying that it's maybe 10 times more lethal than a regular influenza, that it's probably twice as infectious as the regular influenza. Um, so it's it's a more dangerous bug. It's a bug that we don't have medication for. It's a drug bug that we don't have vaccine for. So our options for limiting the control of it is very small. And that's why we're suddenly in this unprecedented uh, social isolation, or as people are now saying, physical isolation, social contact or whatever. Um, so uh, this is unprecedented. And certainly I, I accept to a certain degree, you have to look at the social causes of well-being, right? And, and this is going to mean that a lot of people are being laid off. A lot of people are worried about paying their rent. A lot of people are distancing from people who are their normal support groups. And so there's going to be a whole pile of knock-on effect on this, both economically and socially and medically. Um, but really, I feel I have to toe the party line and accept that the people who are experts, the people who spent their entire life studying epidemiology and preparing for pandemics like this, um, know what they're doing and, and what they're saying is what you know we should do. And so that, state, you know, like, that's perfect, right? I want to make sure yeah. give you enough time to, sure. to get that yeah. out. So, and, and to be honest, I don't see an alternative because if we do nothing, we're going to be overwhelmed. And it, it doesn't take much to overwhelm an intensive care unit in Canada because they're at sort of 99% capacity already. Uh, every, you know, one or two extra cases a day is enough to overwhelm most ICUs. Sure. Now, but uh, we are talking about trillions and trillions of dollars of economic damage and the kind yeah. of poverty that comes from that and dis dislocation, just even in substance abuse use that goes up, could kill more people uh, uh, than, than this uh, COVID does. I mean, I, I just don't know whether or not 
if the small group of people that made this decision uh, were thinking about anything else besides just pulling the fire alarm and, and shutting everything down. That's all. Well, I, it's, I don't know. That's not, that's, again, it's not my area of expertise. Sure. Um, and I don't think any of this thing was done lightly. And I don't think this was done without consideration. Uh, and I think it is unprecedented, clearly. Um, but I think it is an unprecedented situation. I don't think that we've dealt with a virus this dangerous, this contagious, that is spreading this rapidly. Uh, and when you look at what's happening in Italy, and when you get reports from what it's like to be a doctor or a nurse in Italy, it's clearly very scary. And if Canada does nothing, then there's no reason to assume we're not going to go the same course as countries like Italy and Spain. So I'm going to so be I'm going to I'm going to be devil's advocate here, but in, okay, sure. but 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 only empowered by public health. Because public health for the last, well, five years that we've been covering the vaping issue as we slide into vaping. Um, Yeah, yeah. As we've been covering the vaping issue, uh, we have a thousand people responding to a survey. We have 10,000 people sending in postcards regarding flavors around around the efficacy of vaping, you know, as a tool for harm reduction. And every single time, whether in Canada or the U.S., more in the U.S., though, but definitely you always hear back, well, those are just analogies. We're epidemiology. We deal in population level evidence. And right. so, but what I'm finding with the COVID thing is just saturated with analogy. All oh, this doctor on CBC said he's canceling his holidays, hair on fire. You know, Italy is still only analogy because it's not the entire population of the earth when we're talking about a pandemic. So, you know, I, I'm just wondering, nobody seems to be holding people's feet to the fire on the analogy versus, you know, population level uh, modeling and so forth, right? I'm not entirely sure I understand your question there. Yeah, that's okay. You're not likely. It was more of a comment. Uh, Yeah, I think it's more of a comment Um, for sure. Because it's just just frustrating, you know, uh, because, because, you know, vapors try to make a point all the time that, you know, vaping is a a viable alternative to smoking. Vaping is an effective tool to quit smoking. And the last one, which is the big one, is that vaping saves lives. And none of those three things are at all accepted by public health. And and, and indeed, instead of that, except for in England, every time I talk public health, I'm I'm absolutely not mentioning England. (laughs) They are not. They're they're, they're out of it. I'm talking on our our continent. And even Canada, obviously, has a, a bit of a, you know, more rational approach. But I need to, you know, cut a big swath here because we just went through this 18 months from when then Commissioner Scott Gottlieb from the FDA gets up September 2018 and says there's an epidemic of teen vaping and that that epidemic poses a clear and present danger to the health of young people and that the FDA will not tolerate another generation of young people to become addicted to nicotine. And I've been saying this for a year and a half on air incessantly that that's a massive danger when the world's largest public health agencies, because you know the FDA and CDC made that call together, if not the CDC entirely, uh, Dr. Gottlieb looked a little stunned when he was making that, and it was 180 from from his 2017 approach. But that being said, um, when when the world's largest public health agencies use the language of epidemic and clear and present danger, those are the words they use to quarantine cities, to strip civil liberties, all the things that we see happening right now. And to abbreviate it, six months ago, we had the vaping-related lung illness pop up. Right. And, yeah, the C- exactly. and the CDC spent six months n- not clearing that up at all. I mean, basically saying that vaping kills. Yeah. Uh, and so I just wonder why would anyone believe the CDC when their track record as of just moments ago was one of lying about another respiratory illness that uh, was not attributed to vaping. I agree with you absolutely that the CDC totally failed on Evali. I mean, it shouldn't be even e-cigarette and vaping-associated lung injury. If you're going to call it anything, uh, call it e-vitamin-associated lung injury. And their performance on that was horrendously bad, uh, and so bad that it's inconceivable to think that this was just a mistake that um you know it's 
the purpose, you know, when there's something bad going happening, the purpose of the CDC is to identify exactly what's going bad and to inform people of the risks appropriately. Yeah, so for example, if there's a bad batch of spinach out there, yeah, we don't immediately say to everybody, stop eating all green vegetables. As soon as possible, we say, it's spinach, don't eat spinach. And then as soon as possible after that, we say, don't eat spinach produced from this particular farm, this particular date. That's the bad stuff. What the CDC said is, don't vape. And they were totally wrong on that, because when finally we got all the evidence, the evidence is that it wasn't regular nicotine vaping. This was entirely associated with THC carts, and particularly THC carts contaminated with vitamin E. So they did two things wrong. First of all, they didn't appropriately inform the people that are actually at high risk. So they should very early have said very clearly that this is a problem with THC, this is a problem with vitamin E contamination, don't use THC, because that's the specific warning that people need in order that they can make the change in their practices that are necessary to protect their own health. But equally and perversely, they had this whole thing that this was related to vaping, and they were telling people not to vape. And anybody who understood anything about vaping, and pretty much the whole vaping community, immediately said that this doesn't make sense. You know, by this stage, people, some people have been vaping for 10 years. So there's tens of millions of people around the world vaping, you know, including in countries like France and England, where there's a good socialized health system, there's good public health. And if something bad was happening, it could be picked up. So when suddenly you have vapors getting severe lung disease and dying, it's clearly that something different is happening. This isn't regular vapors using regular vaping equipment, regular vaping juices and so forth. Because we know from experience that that doesn't kill people. It doesn't produce this sudden lung injury. So it was obvious to people who understood almost immediately that something else was happening differently here. And I understand that the CDC has to take a little bit of time to make sure it's got its facts straight before it says things. But it was months after everybody else understood that this was vitamin E and THC before the CDC finally said, OK. And it baffles me because you know, there were smart people. And if they're working with good faith and if they were trying to present the science and the information accurately to the public, then it's hard to understand how they possibly did what they did. It's not within the bounds of experimental error or differences of opinion. It's just flat out wrong. And that loses, so for that, the CDC loses credibility. And the snag is that now they need credibility, right? Because they need credibility when they tell you social distancing, close the pub, close the daycare, don't let kids play in the playground, right? They're asking a lot of people and they have to have credibility to do that. And as far as the vaping community is concerned, they've lost it because they lied so clearly and blatantly about Ivali that there is a real element of trust. So that's a problem. And so even for somebody, even for somebody for like you, who you know, doctor for decades, yeah. you know, pre, you know, you've got obviously predisposed to believe, you know, the the most yeah. preeminent public health organization in the world, and even yeah. for you, there's some doubt. Very definite doubt. Like I mean. It creases me to say that I think I'm right and the CDC and the WHO is wrong, right? Because, I mean, how can you do that without, you know, like I need a tin hat and, you know, I need to be reminded that the world is actually round and stuff like this. Um, but both the CDC and the WHO have said stuff about vaping, which is so patently and obviously untrue that you really find it hard to believe that they're actually being sincere and telling what they believe is the truth. So they're being duplicitous. I can't find another explanation for it. You know, like, I'm prepared to give people you know, the benefit of the doubt, right? But there is no doubt to give people benefit of here. Right. So let's uh, let's uh, let me jump over here to. Um, there we go. So I'm just showing, and you can see it too. I'm showing our audience just my uh, research software here. This is Zotero, where all of our articles uh, go into before they get you know curated up to RegWatch or get included in our coverage in some manner or another. This is our CDC file. This is just CDC's postings in here, and it's uh, curated already at, at some level in here. And <clears throat> excuse me, everybody can see here, right here is when uh, on August 
23rd and this telebriefing here by the CDC is where it all began uh, and transcript. And this is a telebriefing severe pulmonary disease associated with the use of e-cigarettes. So this is the first grenade that's thrown in terms of uh, the language manipulation that they've used. And uh, we'll get there in one second. I'm going to close us doc here. I'm going to close us right into February 25th and then we'll pop back to the stuff we're talking about. I'll do this real fast. So here we have the entire start of it and right off the bat, they know that e-cigarettes have nothing to do with THC. Most people have uh, now know that the CDC knew long before this telebriefing happened that it was THC or, you know, cartridges. There's news reports and stuff like that that say that. And so and then, so obviously there is just, you know, a litany here on August 30th, which we've reported on several times, is the um, HAN... Uh, the health alert out to the health, the health alert network. And so this went out, this was the first major alert that went out across all of the United States. And in it, it did, of course, e-cigarettes. And then they, we'll get into the maize and coulds and should in a second. I don't get too far off on this, but anyhow, so this is the one that got sent out and went everywhere and did not ask for any testing, zero testing. So we're in the middle of what they're pinning as a national epidemic built on top of the youth vaping epidemic. This is an outbreak of vaping-related lung illness, and they don't even ask any medical professionals in the country to do any testing, just ask the uh, teens to self-report. And I'm not going to comment on that. So just to be clear <laughs> what you're saying, they should at that stage have asked for blood tests or urine tests for THC. Uh, and clearly they should have done that, and they eventually got around to it, but they took a long time. Yeah, so, I mean, what, what should they have normally done? Well, I don't know that you can have any normal in here, right? But okay. if you're looking at a new disease or an epidemic of something or an outbreak, you begin by casting a very wide net and you look at everything. Uh, and you know, the possibility of contaminated THC, contaminated legal substances had to go in there. Um, and, you know, they should have been testing these people for all drugs. Um, you know, they should be doing a talk screen on everything. Oh, I totally agree. There's no doubt on that. It just, it was glaringly absent. And then yeah. as we run through, again, it's just, you know, incessant. Every single day from August until I would say probably early December for sure. Right. Every day, new cases of vaping related lung illness as the number goes up and then yeah. new deaths. And that was just constant, incessant, all the way up to the end of the yeah. new year. And the media lapped it up. And, and the media would often say, you know, this is a vaping-associated lung injury, and then at the bottom, in small print at the very end, oh, by the way, this patient was also using THC. Um, if you were lucky. Was, if you were lucky, you yeah, got if you're that. Lucky. Yeah, exactly, yeah, if you were lucky. Yeah. So the reporting was, to be charitable, lax, right? To be more fair, incompetent, or negligent. So I want to just remind everybody, we're talking about just moments ago. Right, like this is moments ago. So we head into through October. So by October 4th, FDA has said, whoa, wait a minute. We actually have a few people here that uh, have science still in their brains in a proper way. And they went, whoa, 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 whoa. This isn't nicotine vaping. This is illicit THC black market vaping. That was on October 4th. FDA said, yep. that was it. CDC stuck right to it and just kept pushing it through the media. And the media was just happy to take it. And they just went over and over and over again. And we know what happened. I mean, national vaping bans, they all, they, it went so high up. They had, the, they had the president of the United States believing that vaping kills. I'm certain of it, right? And that's, you know, what was happening there. So the long and short of this whole story, which is just a gross, horrible story, is the fact that we get into the new year. And it's January 17th when uh, CDC finally does a mea copa in their, uh, you know, news briefs. Remember, they do these telebriefings biweekly on issues, sometimes every week on others, all these news releases that go out, and it's just jacked right into uh, mainstream media. And so on the 17th of January, CDC comes out, most, 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 just they can't even give you uh, truth at all. I mean, that's so mendacious. It's just like, ah, uh, 
Most eValley patients used THC-containing products as new cases continue to decline. Small percentage of cases reporting non-THC product use needs further study. It's just they should be. CDC today released two reports on e-cigarette or vaping product use associated lung injury. Evalley. Confirming that most eValley patients report using THC-containing products and that new eValley cases have continued to de decline with time. We're going to get to eValley in a sec when we get to our language part. So you know, they, 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 they clear it up a bit, but they never really do exonerate uh, uh, traditional nicotine vaping. It, it, to me, it's kind of like, it's kind of like making uh, uh, a claim about somebody in you know, like in a hall of a legislature where you can never be touched for what you say, no. a complete total smear. Like you, you basically say, you know, Brent Stafford is a serial killer, by the way, I'm not, but you can take that and use it all you want. But, you know, and that's done from inside, you know, the, the legislature, well, I can't sue for defamation. And uh, so in this particular case, they, they just won't even clear up their own assassination uh, on the virtue of vaping. We call it the virtue of vaping. They've assassinated the virtue of vaping. This is January 17th. So final bit on this is really the kicker because obviously COVID had already broken in December in China. Don't think for one second, the CDC didn't know anything about it. The CDC is the one that set up China's CDC in the 1980s. The CDC set up CDC-like operations in 60 countries in the last five years in the effort to fight future global pandemics. It's all run out of the CDC. The WHO's pandemic programs run out of the CDC. It's funded by Americans out of American uh, general budget. So, I mean, they just upped it uh, again just a year and a half ago. So we are talking about the same people who lied about vaping, who lied about the epidemic, who lied about vaping-related lung injury are the same ones that pulled the fire alarm on the world's global economy and complete total disruption of everyone's lives. We have no idea what the ramifications are going to be from that, but we know what the hysteria looked like for the last six months, just the last six. So on February 25th, and this is the kicker, on February 25th is the day that the CDC closed the book on eValley. CDC states update number of hospital, hospitalized eValley cases and eValley deaths. So uh, this is where they announced the CDC today announced the updated number of hospitalized e-cigarette or vaping product use associated lung injury eValley cases and eValley deaths. As of February 18th, 2020, and that's the last month, folks, 2,807 cases of hospitalized eValley or deaths were reported, all 50 states, da dun da da due to continued declines in new eValley cases since September 2019, and the identification of vitamin E acetate as a primary cause of eValley's today's release is the final bi-weekly CDC status update on the number of hospitalized eValley cases So and deaths. So the CDC has closed the book on a valley on their great lie. And then on the exact same day, and let me just reiterate, on the exact same day, they published this transcript the next day, so that's why it says 26. On the exact same day as they closed the case on a valley, they did a two-hour telebriefing at the CDC and pulled the fire alarm on COVID. And it was the CDC people that did this. There was nobody in the administration that approved this. They just went on and did what they normally do. And they just lit a fire. And so you're a bit familiar with that, um, Dr. Oyston. Let me put this back to you. And I thank everybody to kind of put up with that. It's, it's really hard. I mean, how do you really capture the Machiavellian aspect of that? I mean, am I, do I have a tinfoil hat on for pointing this out? No, not at all. But I think you have to uh, differentiate between the disease and the people who are communicating about it. You know, Evali was a genuine thing. It killed, I think, 500 people in the end. Uh, and in the end, people got to the root cause of it and eventually said, yeah, this is something to do with you know, vitamin E uh, contamination of THC. So the disease was there and it was real and it was investigated. 
the communication around it was appallingly bad, inexcusably bad. Uh, but that doesn't alter the fact that it existed. And the same thing with um, with COVID. COVID, the disease does exist. It does kill people. It does spread. It It is a problem. It's a global problem. Um, and you may now not trust the CDC as much as it would be nice to trust the CDC. I understand that. Um, you may query about the exact date on which they spread the alarm. But the disease still exists and it's still killing people and it's still spreading and it's going right. to kill more people. Right. And, and I mean, obviously, the, the disease exists. The virus exists for sure. Right. No doubt. Yeah. That's not the issue. Yeah. And, the, and the timing, the timing of it is, is only an issue because of state of mind. Okay. So you have, and if, if if the day before, you know, COVID became this, right? And you were to evaluate the CDC and remember, it's not just the CDC because of the preeminent organization, it spins all the way down through public health, you know, foot, right. foot soldiers, right? And you're fighting it on the local level with the local media that are getting hit by the local body part orgs and by the local community uh, public health people that... I mean, it is literally an army of public health people, and it all does come right down from CDC. It certainly does. And then, of course, you know, we have countries across the world that, you know, responded to the hysteria over vaping-related lung illness, and they banned vaping altogether in their countries. Right. Yeah. yeah so, does, so, I mean, we are talking about a spun-up global hysteria over the epidemic of vape, teen vaping, which rolled right into uh, uh, E-Valley. And so my question is, this is state of mind. Because they, they've certainly had hysterical, maybe not totally CDC, because they might be <laughs> a bit more, uh, uh, you know, anyhow. But the fact of the matter is, is that, is that the, the story they, they spun certainly flourished hysteria across, you know, right. all the way down the line, right? So what's the state of mind that they have when they go from that to COVID without a breath? Right. Okay. I... I, I mean, I, 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 you're trying to put these two things together, and I'm not sure that this isn't just a coincidence. Like, I mean, nobody chose the timing for this epidemic to start. So um, we can, so we can expect so, then hysteria at any level. So it's not a vape; it's it's a vaping-related lung illness. But you know, everybody who who knows anything, even tons of people in public health, do not right. recognize it as. And so, sorry. So let me just say, I get it. I get it. But the fact is, though, is that there there has to be some modicum of response, right? There, we have to trust that they're they're going to have some thinking about the response. That's all. Right. Yep. I don't I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I think um, the knock-on effects from what is happening now in terms of the health the health illnesses from being unemployed, from uh, not being able to speak to your relatives, right, to kids not going to school, the 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 downside of this in the long term is enormous. Like you know, my investments have taken a hit. I'm sure yours have as well. So there is an enormous problem here, and it would be nice if we had more faith in the CDC than we do. We have, as you know, the vaping community certainly has very strong reasons to doubt not only the veracity but perhaps even the goodwill and the good intentions of the CDC. Uh, I don't know that we should necessarily extend that to everything that the CDC does in every other field of endeavor. Uh, I mean, and that's fair. It's, but it is astonishing, though, that we are at the point where the world's preeminent public health agency that right now is in a global is triggered a global shutdown that we're even talking about that they might uh, there might be some issues. Let's jump over to the news media, um, Dr. Sure. Oyston, because uh, we've got, we've spent some good time. I'm hiring you as a curator for Regwatch, and you've just okay, sure. that's a trust me, it doesn't pay a lot, but um, so we've got uh, the coronavirus updates from NBC News. So this is curated at Regwatch. Vaping one of the best ways to trash your lungs and maybe die if you catch coronavirus. So. This is, uh, was published yesterday uh, by MSNBC. I, mean, I don't even know what, much more to have to say, except for, you know, there's the headline that NBC uh, yeah. has pushed out through their thing. What do you make of that? This is so far off base, it really isn't even funny. You know, I mean, 
certainly you can demonstrate that there are things that vaping does to bad, that are bad for the lungs, right? Vaping is not good for your lungs. But the amount of harm that vaping does is very small. And it's particularly very small compared to the amount of damage that cigarette smoking does. You know, and whether you accept Public Health England's figure that, that vaping is 20 times safer than cigarette smoking or whether you think it's some other number, clearly vaping doesn't contain all the poisonous chemicals and the many carcinogens that are present in cigarette smoke. But it's a whole far more safe than cigarette smoke. Um, and it says here, just uh, to point out as we're we'll conversation mode a little bit more here, yeah. and thank you for bearing with, vaping injures the lung tissues. Is that do we, is that true? It does a little bit, you know, like I mean, it's, it, it, it's, you could certainly produce evidence uh, that there are things that vaping does, which isn't good for your lungs. So, but the thing is you have to make the comparison to smoking, right? And there's plenty of evidence that smokers who switch to vaping, their lungs get better. And that's both anecdotal evidence uh, from thousands and thousands of people who've done it, right? And have reported, yeah, you know, I, I was less likely to get flu, for example after I switched to, to vaping from cigarette smoking, um, that my COPD got better. You know, and there's research by Ricardo Pelosa from Italy saying that COPD gets better, you have fewer asthma attacks. So although vaping probably does so, some small amount of lung damage, it does a hell of a lot less than smoking. And for smokers who switch to vaping, there are very real, very serious health benefits. So as a doctor, then, in the midst of the COVID crisis, yeah. what's your advice to vapors? Do they have to stop or can they vape with some assurance, you know, confidence, I guess, that they'll be okay? We really don't know, okay? Like, because people are making all this stuff about, like, vaping will make your, your COVID worse. And they're doing that completely in the absence of any scientific evidence, right? There is no scientific literature anywhere in the world that specifically addresses the question of, do vapors suffer worse from COVID than other people? There is, that has never been studied. We don't know. And you can produce, a, you can theoretically argue that they might be worse. Uh, and the newest I can find to an article that suggests that is there's a mouse study saying that mice who are subjected to, uh, to vape and then exposed to influenza virus did worse than mice who were not exposed to vape. So, and that's, that's right. We've got that. It's not as fun to show yeah. that one. It's that's the yeah. older one from 2015, correct? Right. Yeah. And and so that's probably been something, right? But it's mice, and it's influenza virus, not coronavirus. And also, they didn't have a group that was smoking, right? I'm sure that if they had a group of smoking, those people would do even worse. The other thing which is really interesting is that vape juice contains propylene glycol. Most vape juice is about 50% propylene glycol. And that actually has antibacterial and antivirus properties. And there's a couple of papers going back to the 1940s in which they're actually spraying propylene glycol in hospital wards as a way to spread, to prevent the spread of infection. And so there is an argument that propylene glycol actually kills viruses. It certainly kills influenza virus and it reduces the spread of influenza virus. So if you're going to tell me from one set of studies in mice and influenza that uh, propylene glycol and vaping makes it worse, I can come back at you and say, well, actually, maybe it makes it better. I mean, it's it's not crazy. And I'm not saying that you know as soon as you get COVID, you need to start vaping the propylene glycol because it's going to cure you. But I am saying that we genuinely don't know. We have no proper scientific evidence on any relationship between vaping and COVID. And it could go either way. So if you're vaping now, particularly if you're vaping as an alternative smoking, keep on. For God's sake, don't go from vaping back to smoking. That is absolutely a crazy bad step. And we know with Avali that some people did that. They were so scared that vaping was going to kill them immediately that they figured, well, we go back to smoking and have a slow death. Um, so we have to be very careful about what we say because Certainly for the people who are vaping as an alternative to smoking, they are doing the right thing and they need to continue doing the right thing. And they don't need to worry that this is going to have really bad effects on their, um, you know, if they get COVID. Okay. Well, and we're going to take a, a quick look here too, as well, at some more of the, some more of these stories. But first, I want to just mention to everybody that if you do get a chance to please go to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's our support website. 
where you can go as a viewer and kick a few dollars over to us, either monthly or one at a time. Either way, it would be most appreciated. We are obviously, well, we're fan funded, we're in small industry funded, and you know, obviously we work with some big companies too, and everybody is hurting. That was happening, I mean, public health has just been bashing this industry so hard for now two years. It's amazing anybody is still in business. Yeah. But I, I got a feeling that, of course, that uh, vapors will prevail. But so please go over to uh, Regulator Watch, sorry, support.regulatorwatch.com. And then here you can jump in and see some of our coverage. We do actually have our, uh, a good overview of our coverage up on the site. And you can use our easy support tools and enjoy some of the great companies that are helping us make this con content happen. And that's Demand Vape is our U.S. anchor supporter. This piece Stealth, Divine Laboratories, and of course, there are a whack of other great Canadian companies and U.S. companies that have been happy to help and individual contributions to as well. All right. Well, that's the pitch uh, for us. So, Doc, um, have you ever recommended vaping to a patient? Yes. Do you tell? Uh, and, in fact, for a while, yeah, and in fact, for a while, I was trying to set up a business. I have a, a website, Quit by Vaping, and... Um, this is one of my retirement projects because since 2006, as I've been very keen to get people to stop smoking and I've been involved with various initiatives to, to reduce smoking. Uh, and in the last 18 months, I've been very interested in vaping as a way to get people to, to stop smoking. So I like to say that I'm not pro-vaping, I'm anti-smoking, but I see vaping as a tool to get people away from cigarette smoking. Um, so I've actually been trying to set up a business to running a course for vapors who want to use, say, for smokers who want to use vaping as a way to quit smoking. Uh, but my timing of this has been just unbelievably terrible because, uh, you know, first of all, there's the Holy Valley crisis and nobody wanted to talk about vaping in any way, shape or form. Uh, and now we have all this social distancing and I can't gather people together and have a little discussion about, you know, how they should uh, switch from smoking to vaping. So at the moment, I've had to put that whole thing on the back burner. It's one of many small businesses which is currently suffering from uh, the COVID crisis. Oh, geez, that's, uh, yeah, that's tough. But what an interesting idea uh, to to do that and coming not, you know, not that there's anything wrong with psychology or in psychiatry or any of the other kind of counselor kind of positions. I mean, you're you're like what we call on RegWatch a doctor doctor. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, there you go. So, all right, well, that's good. And then you've got, uh, what's the other, let's do your other websites here right now real quick while we're on the, when we're okay. on the theme. Uh, not sure. I have a blog. This is uh, johnoyston.com. Um, and that was a general interest blog, but over the last six months, it's been taken over uh, by discussions about vaping issues. Sorry, it's johnoyston.com or is it oyston.com? Oyston.com slash blog is one. And you can also get it to it from johnoyston.com. They come to the same place. Got it. There I we think go. You've given oyston.com.blog. So oyston.com forward slash blog. Excellent. Uh, yeah, there we go. That's it. Yeah. So I've got something there um, about various issues about vaping that have concerned me lately. I've also been active on YouTube. I produced a, a video called The American Lung Association Lies. Uh, calling out the American Lung Association for some lies that they were telling about vaping because uh, they actually said on their website that uh, vaping is smoking and switching from vaping, switching from smoking to vaping isn't quitting smoking. Um, and they spread the whole popcorn lung myth and a whole pile of other things. So I, I had a bit of fun just pulling that apart and I created a YouTube video that had, I think, 3,000 hits in the end. Excellent. Fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, more competition for us, the better. That's all I can say. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's hop uh, over to, uh, to our, the rest of our list here. Yeah. And, and can you see? Yes, you can see. Good. Just making sure there. Yeah. So experts question whether vaping epidemic is behind younger adults being hospitalized with coronavirus, as it's revealed that smokers were 14 times more at risk of their illness becoming severe. Yeah, so this is weird, isn't it? So we're switching from because smokers are more likely to get severe COVID, then vaping causes COVID? Like, it's, like just looking at the title there and following the article, it's kind of hard to follow the logic, right? So we do have some evidence out of China that 
people who cigarette smoke are more likely to get COVID, uh, and also that they are more likely to be severely ill. Uh, the data I have, I think, was 2.4% more likely to have a severe outcome, which was uh, basically ICU admission, ventilation, or death. And this totally makes sense, right? Because COVID is actually a virus that basically kills by giving you pneumonia, uh, and that's like the mechanism by which it causes death. Um, so cigarette smokers have poorer lungs, they have less lung reserve, uh, they have chronic lung disease secondary to their cigarette smoking. So it's it's totally unsurprising that they would end up with worse outcomes uh, if they get COVID. So mm -hmm. I think that's reasonable, and I think COVID is a reason why people should think about stopping smoking. Like, there's never a bad time to stop smoking, but at the moment, this may be a good time. And it may seem perverse because I know that people are very anxious and very upset. And for some people, cigarette smoking is a way they deal with anxiety. It's something that they use to relieve their stress. Uh, and for the next little while, I'm prepared to give people a free pass on that. But for other people, when they try to quit smoking, it's the social pressure from other smokers that makes them fail. So it's a very common story that someone tries to quit smoking. They smoke, they quit smoking for three or four days. They go out with some friends, they have a few drinks, someone hands them a cigarette, and they get back to smoking. Or they have a bad day at work and some of their smoking friends at work say, okay, let's all go and take a smoke break and you know, then we'll get back and have another go. So social pressure from other smokers is a reason why many attempts to quit smoking fail. And now we have this unique situation in which people aren't going out with their friends anymore and they're not meeting up with their coworkers in person. So for some people, this may be a good chance to quit smoking. And different when you quit smoking, different things get better at different times, right? So for example, carbon monoxide is, is a poison which is present in cigarette smoke, not present at all in vape. It has a half-life of about four hours. So that means if you stop smoking even for 12 hours, your level of carbon monoxide in your blood goes back down to normal. And that allows the blood to transfer oxygen to the different parts of the body. And it's probably important in treating infection. For your lungs to get better, and we know this from anesthesia, it takes about four weeks. So this is one thing I've been involved with at a program called Stop Smoking for Safer Surgery. And I wanted people to stop smoking four weeks before elective surgery because that's enough time that your lungs improve and you halve the, the incidence of lung complications and infections after surgery. So it's reasonable to assume that if you were to stop smoking now and you got COVID four weeks or more later, you would do better with that COVID episode because you quit smoking. And it seems COVID is going to be around with us for a long time. You know, some people are saying 12 weeks, some people are saying you know, October or whatever. So COVID is going to be around for a long time. And if you're a smoker now, then I would seriously say, like, think about it. Like, is this something that you could do at the moment while you're changing so many of your other habits? Maybe you could quit smoking. Well, I think that uh, I think some of what you're saying there is baked into the cake a bit because allow me to just mention the fact that, you know, part of the progressive public health movement is, you know, social engineering people to become right. better, yeah. right? That's yeah. the whole nudge uh, yeah. thing about yeah. it, right? So you're, you know, you're making a valid argument for utilizing a total disaster to your life <laughs> to, uh, yeah. you know, potentially nudge yourself over to quitting smoking. I yeah. don't know if you're going to get a lot of buyers on that one there, Doc. I'm putting it out there. Like any chance I get to promote the idea of quitting smoking, I put it out there, right? And because it's so important. It's the best thing you can do for your health. We know that maybe half or two thirds of all smokers end up dying from smoking related illnesses. Um, and in terms of what can you do to prevent yourself getting COVID or to, to, you know, to increase your chance of survival, you know, okay, all the social distancing, the hand washing, all this stuff is all important. Um, but I think there's a reasonable argument that, cig that stopping cigarette smoking is up there somewhere. Well, and you're right. You know, when you're isolated, considering the fact that one of the hardest things about quitting smoking is that, you know, you're used to going out drinking with the buddies and, yeah. and smoking and drinking always go together quite well and exactly. smoking and eating and everything else. So yeah. if you aren't doing any of that, uh, it might be easier. It might for some people. Yeah. Well, that does make some sense. No doubt. I know that the social impact of quitting smoking is always one of the toughest things. Yeah. I actually... So I quit drinking in 2012 uh, and you'd think yeah. that was hard. You know, it, in, in the end, it, everything was about smoking. Like it was right. how hard is it going to be to quit smoking? Like smoking was the one that was, I actually changed my entire eating habits before I even tried to quit smoking. 
I peeled off like 35 pounds before I tried to quit smoking because I knew I would have just been toasted uh, if I had done any other way. And then, of course, vaping was the, I didn't quit smoking with vaping. I quit with Chantex and I went out of my freaking mind. And I happened to have like a first gen pen in the drawer. Yeah, it totally happens to people. And I had a a first gen pen in the drawer, gave that a shot. and, And because it had been so long, since I'd had, you know, about three months, two and a half months or something on that Chantec stuff that I hadn't had any nicotine in me. I actually felt the nicotine from this, from this vaping device that I never could have felt before as a two pack a day smoker. I was a two pack a day smoker for 15 years, another 10 at about a pack and a half, something like that. So when I was looking to quit smoking, any kind of vaping device that I tried just didn't give me enough of a nicotine hit. This was obviously way before, well, sometime before salts. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So let's, uh, what do you think is next then here for us? I think we could keep diving into some of the crappy, bad news and, and horrible media coverage, but everybody knows what that is. Do you have some advice for the vapors that are out there who have to deal with all of this uh, still, uh, you know, happening every day in terms of all these bad things that they're saying about vaping? Is there anything that you could, you know, give them advice on to help manage it? Um, I think you have to like totally ignore a whole pile of the stuff in the media. And every time you have to see something that says anything bad about vaping, you have to say, okay, what's the comparison, right? Because if it's not a comparison of cigarette smoking, then it's not relevant to you as a smoker, right? So if ideally people shouldn't smoke and they shouldn't vape, but if you're in a situation in which the only way you can get yourself off cigarettes and stay off cigarettes is by vaping, then definitely you should do that. And it's a whole pile safer and you need to stick with that program. And you know, if you see this thing that says, you know, vaping can cause cancer in mice. Okay, sure. Can vape, can cigarette smoking cause cancer in mice? Yeah, sure as hell it can. <laughs> you know, um, you, know right. you, you see this stuff that's saying, well, vapors might do worse if with COVID. Well, they might, but for sure as a hell, we know that cigarette smokers do worse. Um, so... You just have to let a whole pile of stuff sweep over you. And it's amazing how much legs some of these rumors have. This whole popcorn lung thing, right? The idea that cigarettes, so that vaping will give you popcorn lung is like a total myth. It's never happened. There hasn't been a single case of popcorn lung during vaping. And and yet everybody you speak to about vaping sooner or later will bring up popcorn lung as, as if this is, you know, as if the wards are full of people with popcorn lung. It's quite astonishing. And then in the in the fall, during the midst of the vaping-related lung illness, of course, there was one indication of potentially maybe another. And let's do talk about that because yeah. there are incessantly they use may, yeah, could, right. potentially. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you make of that? You, are we talking about the CMHA case? The, we're talking about case well, of- we're talking about every. Ca- I'm I'm talking about the grand uh, the grand poo case of like. The Stanton glances, just you know, right. snarling out crap. Part of my expression, but snarling out crap with a may and a could and a possibly and a potentially be right there. And you know, yeah. the journalists they write that potentially, and yeah. then but and don't care that it it yeah. just. Yeah, so certainly Stanton has got a lot of attention lately because he wrote this blog article talking about COVID, and I think like every journalist wants a new angle on COVID. Yeah, you know, and so the sports journalists are saying like, how do you create a gym out of stuff in your home if you're in isolation or whatever. Um, so Stanton wrote an article which was almost entirely fact-free, you know, that sleight of hand and mixing around and may and could and possibly and whatever, you know, was saying, you know, that maybe, you know, people would do worse with COVID if they vaped and everyone should quit vaping right now. But, you know, without any actual evidence, I mean, he quoted the article I talked about, about, about the mice uh, and influenza. Yeah, and Bill de Blasio, the same thing. You know, like he has no evidence to say what he's saying there. He's just producing this out of thin air. And it seems like it's open season on vapors, right? And anybody can say anything bad about vapors they like. Uh, and, and that's how you get headlines. Um, but it seems something yeah. more like. So he said, he said, can increase the risk of vape coronavirus. There's no evidence that it can do that. It's It, it may possibly. Um, it probably doesn't. It probably it it it's more likely that if you get coronavirus and you vape, then maybe it'll be like two percent worse than if you didn't vape. 
uh, that that that's a reasonable thing to suggest, uh, but it probably doesn't increase your chance of actually getting it. Um, so you've spent a lot of time here on on you know our show, making sure you're careful with what you say because yeah. you're a man of science, you're a doctor, yeah. you're, you're responsible. So yeah. so if you can do that. And if you can put that together in your head about what's the right responsible way right. as a medical yeah. professional should right. should handle yourself in public, how does it explain de Blasio, uh, uh, Cuomo, uh, Michigan governor, you know, all of the, all the Democratic governors, all the Democratic senators that sign the the Senate things every you know month? Right. How can you explain that? How can how can they not have that same level of of approach that you do? Well, honestly, I think a lot of it is that I don't have any money on the table here. Like, I, I'm not being paid to do this. I, I'm not being paid by tobacco. I'm not being paid by vape. Um, it doesn't really matter to me financially, any of this stuff, right? This is stuff I'm, I'm doing because as a physician, I feel that I have a responsibility to to do what I can to look after the health of patients. And that's, that's where I'm coming from. Um, and I came to vaping with no preconceptions as to whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, right? I, basically, I want to get people to stop smoking. And when you look at things that can stop people smoking, vaping is certainly something which I believe and you know, works. And I think that it reduces the risk for people, even if they continue to vape and they never, they never actually quit the use of nicotine. I think that for adults to use nicotine is in the same sort of order of adults using, nicotine, uh, using caffeine or using alcohol. Um, I think it's a totally acceptable thing for people to do on a regular basis. When um, we uh, when we were doing our our pre-interview, uh, you said something. You, you were you. We were talking about the CDC. We we're talking about what might could be their motives for right. have lying through yeah, Valley. Yeah, 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 and and you were struggling there to figure out. Well, could it be tobacco money yeah. that was CDC yeah, or I, fun? And I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I still am. Um, you know, like when I did the thing about the American Lung Association, it was fairly clear that one of the big donors to the American Lung Association is the Johnson & Johnson Foundation. Johnson & Johnson make a whole part of the traditional nicotine replacement and smoking cessation medications. And so it's not hard to say that if you get $100 million from the Johnson & Johnson Foundation, then you have a reason to be concerned about vaping because that could that is taking money away from them, right? The, in Britain, where vaping is the commonest way to get people to stop smoking, uh, prescriptions for uh, the traditional non-smoking medications have gone down by 70%. So I'm fairly comfortable tying our link between Johnson & Johnson and the money they donate to the American Lung Association and the American Lung Association stance on vaping. If you look at the World Health Organization, they are very heavily funded by the Bloomberg Foundation. And, and Bloomberg has very strange views about nicotine, which are not based on fact. Um, so, and if you look at the organization of the World Health, World Health Organization's tobacco control strategy, there's this whole little thing off one corner, which is Bloomberg. Uh, so clearly, to a certain extent, Bloomberg has bought the WHO, and the WHO, to a certain extent, reflects his beliefs about nicotine and about vaping. With the CDC, it's a little bit harder to understand where that is coming from. Now, one of the things I used to do is I used to work with uh, a group called Tobacco 21, which in the States was trying to raise the level for buying tobacco to 21. Uh, yeah, that's the thing with Bloomberg. Um, and they were totally blatant about it and totally upfront about it and totally clear about it. They said big tobacco has bought the American government. They said big tobacco has bought the federal level of the government and it's bought the state level of government. And the only way we're going to get the law on tobacco changed and the way the legal age raised is to work from municipalities and states because big tobacco hasn't actually bought, you know, not the states say that, uh, from municipalities and cities and towns because those haven't been bought by big tobacco yet. Uh, and that's how they did it, or at least that's how they started it. Um, and they they worked their way through uh, you know, city by city, town by town. Yeah, and exactly, this is how Bloomberg you know, is spending a billion dollars to fight tobacco, and he thinks with $160 million, he can basically buy state legislatures, buy city legislatures, and you know, push through this ban on flavored e-cigarettes. Uh, it's interesting that his attempt to buy being president of the United States failed, uh, so there's some limit on what you can buy with money even in America. Um, but clearly he thinks that he can you know, buy state legislatures. That is true, and it's, uh, it's ominous. 
it's I mean, there's so much money that is uh that is marshaled against vaping. It's yeah. it's amazing. And and, and and the thing is, I really think that vaping could be an existential threat to the whole tobacco industry. You know, if you look now at the kids who vape, the kids who vape aren't going to smoke, right? And while people, some people talk about it being a gateway, it's not. It's more like an inoculation. Like if you own a jaw, you're not going to want to smoke a cigarette. A cigarette is crap compared to jaw, right? It's smelly. You have to find an ashtray. You have to put the ash somewhere. You have to find a lighter. You can't hide it. Everybody knows what you're doing. Your hands smell. Your clothes smell. Right? Yeah. Why would anyone smoke if they own a jewel? It's like owning a Ferrari and deciding to take you know, a pony ride. Um, yeah. So I think that tobacco is very, very concerned. And tobacco has a hell of a lot of money. And a lot of that money then flows through into American government, you know, particularly through, for example, uh, the master settlement agreement with the states. A lot of the states like California and New York are dependent on money from the master settlement agreement, which is a proportion of the amount of money that tobacco makes. And so if tobacco starts making less money, states like New York and California suddenly start getting less money. So when those states in particular start going on about vaping and about jewel and about flavors and stuff like that, they're protecting their tobacco money. And that, I mean, that's certainly true. It's a complex uh, web of interests that uh, look to, yeah, look to kill vaping. There's no doubt. So um, in now inside here, the, the with the COVID crisis yep. over the Wuhan virus, because it's from China, um, I want to just make, make sure that I mention that there are some efforts going on to classify vaping as an essential service. Yes. And so uh, CVA has come out and called on Canadian governments to ensure adult access uh, for vaping products yeah. because we are yeah. entering more and more into lockdown phase here, which is essentially yeah. house arrests. Yeah. And then we've got in Europe um, a good friend of our show and a, a great scientist, uh, Dr. Ricardo Pelosa, got involved um, as soon as he could, uh, responded to it. This is a great story by Helen Redmond. It's been on the show from Filter Mag. Um, you can find it on regulatorwatch.com. Just go to the, our COVID-19, uh, CV-19 section and you will find it. And then so they got made great efforts there uh, to get um, vape shops. They were originally, uh, they, they were originally included, but now are exempt. So they're now exempt from yep. the lockdown, which is yep. great news. And then on your side, you two as well um, have actually uh, uh, put some uh, put some pen to paper too. Tell us about that. Yeah. Okay. So for smokers that have quit and are now vaping, vape shops are an essential service, right? Vaping is medicine for these people, uh, and if they don't get access to their vaping supplies, then many of them are either going to have to find illegal backstreet vaping supplies, which gets us back to the Holy Valley stuff, um, or they're going to go back to cigarette smoking. So during this crisis, nobody is talking about closing down all the tobacconist shops, all the convenience stores, all the gas stations, all the places that sell cigarettes. Right. So without question, cigarettes are going to be available during COVID and people are going to be able to buy cigarettes. If people are going to be able to buy cigarettes, then people who have quit and are going over to vaping should be able to buy their vaping supplies. Uh, and the Canadian Vaping Association reckons that there are about a million vapors in Canada uh, who are reliant on adult-only specialty vape stores to get their vaping equipment. Uh, and a couple of things they point out, which is quite interesting, uh, is that now the post office will no longer deliver vaping supplies because you have to have a signature to prove that you're over 18. Uh, and understandably, the post office doesn't want to have their people you know, standing on the doorstep having conversations with customers and getting their signature. Uh, so you can no longer buy uh, vape stuff and cannabis and other things that require signatures um, available through the post office. Uh, and the convenience stores have been taken over by big tobacco, and they tend to sell tobacco, the, the stuff that's associated with big tobacco. Uh, and those things tend to have very, very high, unnecessarily high nicotine concentrations. So the vape stores sell a whole range of nicotine concentrations, both high and low. But if you want to get access to the low concentrations, you have to go to a vape store. So clearly, if we're still allowing people to buy tobacco, we should allow them to buy vape supplies. Uh, and they should be in the same category as pharmacies or whatever. They're, they're basically providing medical stuff. Uh, and so far, from what I know, uh, Ricardo Peloso managed to get this passed in 
um, in Italy and in France and in Greece. Uh, and there was a tweet from Martin Dockfall, who is the tobacco control lead for Public Health England, applauding this and saying that Britain needs to go the same way if Britain gets to this level of lockdown. Uh, and certainly Canada needs to do the same thing. And so I've been writing to health ministers and uh, various other people who have maybe some influence in this saying, you know, that if we get to a stage where only essential services are allowed to remain open, uh, then vape shops should be counted amongst those essential services. Uh, I'm not sure that's going. The, the one place I know, Illinois, apparently, has decided that vape shops aren't a special service, uh, and, and they've closed all their vape shops, you know, along with their you know, hair salons and other places. Right. Well, Martin and uh, Public Health England certainly know what they're talking about, that's for sure. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, as we're wrapping up here, let me ask you this, you know, and this really is the last thing is, what's your message to Health Canada and to the governments, provincial governments uh, here in Canada with regard to vaping during the COVID crisis? Yeah, I mean, sadly, the vaping is now, sorry, COVID has now taken over the whole public health issue, right? There is nothing anybody in public health is dealing with except COVID, I'm sure. And, and that's entirely right, and that's entirely responsible. Uh, and so vaping has to take a back burner. But what they need to do is to maintain more or less the status quo at the moment, right? So keep the vape shops open, allow people to have you know, access to adult-only vape shops, um, and we'll come back and review the rest of it later. Um, there was a whole pile of hope that they were going to be relaxing the restrictions about what vape store owners could say in terms of um, promoting uh, e-cigarettes as a way to quit smoking, you know, particularly after Hayek's study, which showed how effective vaping is as a way of quitting smoking. So there was a whole pile of things that were happening that were moving in the, hopefully moving in the direction of allowing vape shop staff to be more honest with their customers and provide more information with customers about the benefits of vaping. Uh, so hopefully once this is all blown over, um, they'll get back to that and we can get back on track. And that would be the hope, no doubt. Well, Dr. Oyston, thank you for joining us today on Rug Watch. Thank you, Brent. And good luck uh, over there uh, in the east. We've got the west. Maybe they'll have two different kinds of bugs. So, but uh, I hope everyone, yeah, I hope everyone's going to be safe. Thanks again. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this edition of Reg Watch. Before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com, and consider making a financial contribution to our vaping coverage. It's easy, just dig into your wallet and find a few dollars and toss them over our way. You'll be happy you did, and so will we, and cough all you want all over if you send cash. I'm a conservative, I, I'll be fine. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. For RegulatorWatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.